Hey everybody, thanks for listening. This is Knives Monroe, and you're listening to the podcast. I appreciate it. I'm here with my buddy. I'm just going to get his introduction out of the way, J.R. Molina. J.R., um, quick cue, quick question. What is your favorite movie, and why is it Moneyball? <laughs> well, you know, uh, you've known me for a while, and I've always been kind of a sports guy. Also, been never been good at math, but I've always liked the process of math. So I feel, I feel I feel like Moneyball kind of gets both of those things out of out of the way for me. And then uh, I'm just a huge Brad Pitt fan, and uh, I don't know, it's just one of those movies that I <laughs> I think uh, I don't know if it's my favorite movie, but it it, probably, it might actually be my favorite of the decade. Uh, I guess that's what we'd be talking about, right? Just like different things of the decade, but exactly, yeah. But, so it's yeah. I haven't had a podcast that has a topic per se so this is kind of like the first one so I appreciate for you know po- you popping that bubble but I-, I know you were a big listener for back beyond which was me and Dave's prior podcast where we talked about pop culture that was completely captained by by Dave he's a big uh I always tell him he sucks the dick of the zeitgeist and I say that with as much as much <laughs> endearment as possible but um so loosely, I know we're probably going to have like a kind of like a two act structure to this podcast because you mentioned off mic that you wanted to talk about kind of the highlights of this past decade since we're winding down. We got, you know, I don't know, two more months on the clock uh, before this decade yeah. concludes. And I think you wanted to talk about this is my word, not yours, but uh, new media as well. So we'll, we'll get into that. And um, hopefully we have time for that as well. And I'd love to talk about that because you and I have had some pretty good phone calls about it. But without yeah. further ado, you know, I kind of just put you on the spot joking about the Moneyball thing because I texted you that. Because uh, yeah. <laughs> you're like the only dude I can talk to about Moneyball. I love that movie. Like if I put it on, Claire's like, again, again, you're going to watch this again. It, it's, it's just one of those movies that like, and Laura is the same way where I put it on and I'm trying to picture the movie and she's like, Jerry, I hate baseball. I hate math. And I don't usually like watching movies of like, like male leads. Like this is like torture for her. And I'm just like, no, trust me, this movie is really good. And she can never get into it. But I'm just like, uh, okay. So like, yeah, I'm, it's totally the same thing where it's just like, I know the movies more than like the baseball numbers movie, but it's hard to like, like have people watch it beyond that. You know what I mean? <laughs> for sure um i saw i think i don't know if you texted me about it or if i saw one of your tweets that was talking about the athletics right that you're like how could i not yeah how can i lot how can yeah. i not love these guys and you're very big like on on underdogs and everything like that and obviously the movie yeah. is based on a true story and if you haven't checked it out please whoever's listening the three of you watch it listen to it check it out um it was written by aaron sorkin who was just coming off the social network, I think. Which is another uh, <laughs> kind of best of the movie decade, I guess, right? Like, that's one of the other contenders, but... When you look back at yeah, this no, decade, Aaron's... and uh, maybe we'll talk about music as well, but when it comes to the films, what are what are the usual suspects for you? For me, you know, I think the, the first movies that come off the top of my head when I think of, like, my personal favorite movies, and, like, one of them, one of them is, like, a, is, is one that people don't really consider as one of the better of the decade movies, but it's joy, which is directed by David O. Russell. I remember when that movie came out, I was like on my final days as a movie critic, I, I saw it and, uh, I was just like blown away. And I was like, David O. Russell finally got it. Cause I was never the biggest fan of silver linings or American hustle. 
Mm. But for whatever reason, Joy kind of showed me that he was more than a Marty Scorsese ripoff artist. And he was like this guy who has this weird love of the underdog. I think that's something that's always really powerful in, in movies. I, I really enjoy. So, so Joy is one of them. And then the other ones are for social network, Moneyball, uh, the master, of course, the masters. Whew, <laughs> what can you say about the master that hasn't been said, right? For me, you'd be surprised how many people haven't seen it though. Right? Like in our circle. Yeah. That's, that's the one I think, but, uh, yeah. a lot of people that, that never got to see it. I was just watching some scenes. I don't know why I was thinking about it just yesterday. I mean, I'm always thinking about it, but, um, everything with, um, you know, we were talking about Joker on the phone the other day and the performance is, is totally up there. And I think mainstream audiences have never seen just like the physicality of, you know, postmodern Joaquin, right? Pre I'm still here, except if you've seen the master and if you're a big fan of that movie, then you've seen him get that physical and get that. It's almost like, um, like his face is like a, its own contortion act, right? Like how he can move his face when he gets so gaunt and skinny. But, um, the thing that, if you love Joaquin and Joker, well, Joaquin's just acting with himself, but you got to see him opposite Phil Hoffman. That's what takes that movie to a whole nother level. Their relationship is um, so palpable and it's so like why I keep going back. And the reason why, as opposed to putting on the Blu-ray and actually just watching some scenes on YouTube for the master, I wanted to read the comment sections and people have really interesting takes from what certain things mean oftentimes they're pretty general but i i I read this new take it was the i don't want to give anything away but it's the you know the last time we see we see phil hoffman and they had said this is like phil hoffman saying goodbye you know like it's (laughs) so rarely do actors like james dean never got to say goodbye you know, yeah. and it was, it's kind of in that way. And he, the whole part where Freddie says, you know, in my dream, you said you're, you know, you figured out where we had met in our past life. And he gives that whole monologue. And mm-hmm. I've never really thought super, super deeply on what that monologue could mean. But this commenter had said in a past life that Freddie and Dodd were. Um, soldiers together and they died together and how kind of romantic that is. And I was like, Ooh, I never really looked at it that way. Like in the, the French Prussian war or whatever. And I was like, man, this movie seven years later is still, still making me ache and giving me something new to think about. But uh, it's kind of hard. Like, you know, I I have to sort of give the master a lot of attention because it, it was, it, it was life changing and movies like that come, maybe once a decade if you're lucky so we have to talk about the master no no and and the thing is and maybe i'm getting my timelines wrong this is something where i just like i kind of smush things together but the master came out 2012 right 2012 yeah there was the i i had just made my movie and then in like a month later it came out and that's what was keeping me going was the the trailer for the master yeah and and the reason why 2012 is, is such a a big year for me was that that was the year we met, if you remember. Of course I remember. Come on, what's the matter with you? Yeah, I'm just saying, it's just 2012, that movie came out, that you came to Austin, we met. And uh, in, in a weird way, I always, I always, like, when I think of that movie, I think about you and to, to like, a lesser extent, Dave, because, like, 
that's when I kind of like made my first like real Austin friends, but they were like rally friends. <laughs> so it was just like, um, it was just like, I, I remember me and you would just talk for like hours about, about the master and our, our, like our own little theories. And it was just like, like that was probably the, I don't want to say the last time I was super duper excited about a movie, but you know, I feel like as you get older, you get, at least for me, I, I get like a little, I don't know what the word is jaded or, or less excited to talk about like theories, you know, but like for the master, it was just like, it was something hit with me. And I was just like, Whoa, that's like, what's better than that. And I just saw the movie like three times in theaters and, and, uh, specifically I, I, I wanted so badly to read a, like a happy ending for that movie. And then like, uh, I'm not sure if we're going to spoilers or not, but, but, um, we can, you know, we might movie, as well. We might as yeah, well. I mean, it's, yeah, might, might as well. But the, you know, the movie ends with like Freddie kind of by himself and, and he's kind of, you know, he's kind of still kind of drifting away and, and the movie sort of just like ends almost. Right. And I remember we were talking about that. And if I remember correctly, I was like, well, I think Freddie did develop as a, as a, as a person because he was able to do this thing where throughout the whole movie, he was unable to like have human connection with anybody. And at the end, he specifically like connecting with someone that isn't like God or, you know, and I don't know, there's just that, that movie, like even, even like, what, what is this, like eight years later, right? <laughs> Nearly eight years later, I'm just like, it still gives me goosebumps talking about it. Like, it's just, it's such a, a phenomenal film. And, and, you know, PTA had such a, like, if we're going to like, and this is where, uh, to kind of expand, it's not just going to be like, my number one film and your number one film, but like, right. to kind of expand, like, PTA had such an interesting decade, wouldn't you say, as a director? You know, and that's the other thing that walking into the master, um, I've probably never walked into a movie more hyped, you know, yeah, and it wasn't just because of the trailers, but it was also, this is coming off There Will Be Blood, which is arguably yeah. the best film of last decade. And one of the best things, you know, PTA's ever done. And he's just a guy that keeps kind of topping himself, even though I don't think he looks at it like a sport. But yeah, so coming off of that, this movie was shrouded in so much mystery as well. Like, is it about L. Ron Hubbard? Is it about Scientology? And in the first three minutes of the movie, it's quickly so not about that. And it's not going to be about that. And yeah, it, yeah. And yeah so walking into it for me was like, uh, this is his follow up to there will be blood. Like, surely he's going to underplay the epicness of like the the emotional plot and drama of there will be blood but he kind of raised the stakes oh yeah and and that so he he kind of smartly was like okay maybe i won't be able to top the performance of daniel plainville by danny day lewis but i can have these two amazing actors just go off on each other you know what i mean like that dude like how how many scenes like leave a mark on you as much as like that initial processing scene with with Hoffman and, and Joaquin Phoenix, you know, and then it cuts to the flashback. Like I, I like I'm seriously getting emotional just thinking about it. <laughs> it's just like him with his uh, with uh, with Doris, and it's just like, whew. I like, know, uh, I know. It's one of the most powerful like jump cuts I've ever seen. And I know the listeners is this probably way too inside baseball and behind the curtain and <laughs> yeah. way too specific <laughs> yeah. about this movie. But I mean, not you know. I'm not, I've never been, this is a podcast for another time. I've never been a plot centric person. Like I'm not the person that's like, what's that show about? Like I'm, I'm not that guy or what's that movie about? I don't even know. I'm 
like colorblind when it comes to that, truly. But The Master is a movie, you know, I walked out of that when it was over and I was like, that's the best acting I've ever seen. You know, like yeah. I'd never seen acting and oh my God, Phil fucking Hoffman was my favorite living actor at that time. But I'd never seen Joaquin just kind of from going from, you know, I think it was um, Two Lovers, I'm Still Here, He Took a Break, and then The Master. I, I just, what a, what a progression, you know? Um, I'm not the, the arbiter, the, the final judge. or I'm definitely not a critic when it comes to performances, but it knocked me sideways. And I'm definitely, you can move me and affect my emotions and, and, and you know, I'm a, I'm a slave for that, if, just for good performances. And uh, the score by Johnny Good, Greenwood makes me ache. It hurts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I hadn't felt so connected to a relationship, even though it's two men, two heterosexual men, but I had not felt so connected to a relationship on screen since Clementine and Joel from Eternal Sunshine. Like, that's just how deep, you know, it affected me. Yeah, and I, I remember, and this is something that's, like, never left on mind, but I, I remember when you moved back to Donna, and the first time I saw you, <laughs> you came out to hug me, and then we kind of just recreated the uh, the master hug. Like, whenever they hug each other, yeah. they, they, like, wrestle on the ground. Yeah. And I just always thought, like, they're just like, yeah, I was just like, it was just me, you, and, and Dave, who was just like, yeah, this is like the greatest movie ever. <laughs> and, um, and when I started like meeting like some new people like here, like I met this, this one friend of mine named JP in New and York he was the City. same way. And he was just like in New York. Yeah. And he was just like, Oh yeah, the master is the greatest film ever. And I was like, right. <laughs> it's just, and it, it really is just one of those films where it's, it's like not everyone, like, I guess, quote unquote, like feels it the way we feel it. But whenever you meet someone that, that hat was hit, like the way I was hit, it's just super cool to talk to them and get their, one last, thing that, one, one, one last thing that mm -hmm. I'll say about the movie, and sorry to cut you off, is just it also affected me as a filmmaker, as a screenwriter, as a storyteller, because I had read the PDF, like the script of the master when it was submitted to, you know, the Academy or whatever. The script is nothing like the movie. And I was like, oh, yeah, PTA kind of always over prepares and then goes with the flow. And so it was it was also like a very teachable moment in 2012 for me, like. I just come off making my first movie and then it was, it was, you know, I was such a try hard at the time. And then I, it, it occurred to me that like, if you, if, if the script is good and you have even better actors and, you know, you have the right tools to make the movie, the right wardrobe, like you can really do things completely unexpected and memorable. And at the end of the day, when you walk out of a movie, at least for me, you're thinking about like, what was your favorite part? And really, like, four or five things sticks out in your mind. And with The Master, there was, like, four or five things that I had to, like, I needed to rewatch. And I I'm, I always say this anytime I talk about The Master, but I saw it four times in theater. And uh, each time, I think three times in 70 mil. Like, I was obsessed with this movie. And so um, I was, like, young enough where it still affected my uh, impressionable you know, cinephile mind, but it also was like this transitional coming of age movie for me that pushed me into adulthood. Like you said, I was in Austin and then went back to the Donna and then went to go see about a girl and started a family. But like the master had something to do with like this, that whole emotional journey at that time, I was feeling away. Like when I saw that movie, I was homeless in Austin and I could have bought head and shoulders and food and gallons of water, but I <laughs> instead spent $20 to watch the master, you know, in 70 mils. So, 
Um, I think about all that when I think about the master, but not just, you know, I can even remember the cuts of when the reels changed. Like I saw it that many times, but it's also the la- the staying power of that movie. Um, this is where I pull a Dave and I have to qualify the, the top things of this decade. Um, and it's completely arbitrary, but like if I had to make a, if I had to write down a list of the top 10, let's just say movies of the decade, I have this unwritten rule. It's like an OCD thing where I, I can't put a film from the same director twice. And if I could, oh, I would put <laughs> inherent vice on there, but I can't. So if it's, if it's gotta be one PTA film and he's had, he's been on such a, a tear, um, it's, it's gotta be the fucking master. It's gotta be. And, and you know, it's, uh, the last thing about this is cause I read a lot of PTA interviews and, um, and you said earlier, he doesn't like see it as like, Oh, that like a sport or something, but he did have that interesting interview where like the guy just asked him like, what's your favorite movie of yours? And he didn't like answer like in the roundabout way, but he was just like, well, the one I'm like most proud of was the master. And I felt like that's kind of him saying wow. <laughs> the same thing where he was just like, it was like, it was just this like huge film. And I think, and he, he's never going to talk about it, but I, I have to imagine you feel a lot of pressure to, to top or not top, but to go after there will be blood. You know what I mean? Like, how do you go after that? There's no way, you know, like, I think like the after, only way if I had to, in a Christian Blake sort of fantasy booking, call up Joaquin and Phil Hoffman. That's the only way. <laughs> exactly. It's the only way. You know, and, 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 and it, it really is just kind of, I don't know, one of a kind. But uh, to kind of to kind of switch uh, directors really quick, and we we had to talk about this, and and we haven't even mentioned any of his films. But what's your favorite Scorsese of the decade? I know there's one more coming, <laughs> but at least the few that came out. Oof, that's a good one. I guess it started with Shutter Island Shutter in ten, and then Hugo in eleven, and then Wolf of Wall Street. And I'm sure he has countless documentaries in in between here. Um, and then yeah. I, if I'm being real, uh, silence fucked me up in such a good way. Oh yeah. So you yeah. would say silence? So I, I think I would, uh, it's strangely more rewatchable than the Wolf of Wall Street. I think of the Wolf of Wall Street is one of those, you know, a lot of people were like, it's a return to form, like in a good fellows and sort of way. I get that. It's very accessible. So memorable, quotable, very funny. Uh, Leo kind of pushing himself, Jonah Hill, who will be a reoccurring theme, I think on this podcast. Um, (laughs) I mean, Joe Pesci levels of, whoa, like he is a Scorsese character. Um, but silence to me just emotionally as a, and as a Christian, not to sound corny, whew. That one's, oof, I don't know. I think it's one of the best of the decade um, for sure. And it's also one of those like forgotten sort of films in his, in his oeuvre. I think people won't Wait. really talk about it enough. Oh. So I got to highlight that. It, and, and yeah, and it's, I'm glad you kind of highlighting it because it, it really is. And I feel like Scorsese is kind of cursed in this way where he's become kind of so synonymous with a certain type of film. When he gets out of that, it's just like, oh, well, that was cool, but let's go back to his other stuff, you know? And it's just like, but Silence is kind of this interesting film. It's the only film like it. I mean, he's done a couple, but the only one that's really like it is kind of uh, uh, The Last Temptation of Christ. Sure. <laughs> and, they, and, they, and they both uh, kind of are, are dealing with, like, his inner, his inner like, like uh, I don't know, like his inner feelings of religion because 
I mean, everyone kind of knows this, or everyone, but a lot of people who are, who are big fans of him know that he grew up wanting to be a priest or something, right? Right. <laughs> so you can kind of tell that with some of his films, because a lot of his films are about sin and, and where does it come from, and, and uh, are like, when are you allowed to like, cross that line? And that's kind of what silence is all about, right? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I think my favorite of, his, of the decade for me, and this is like maybe the weird answer, but I kind of, I was re-watching Shutter Island, and man, that movie is just really good. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know why, but like the music of that movie always gets me emotional. And then Leo's performance is is sort of is sort of like classic Leo. He's he's doing a lot with his eyes, and and I don't know. So I think I think for me, I think it's kind of neck and neck with Wolf of Wall Street and Shutter Island. But I think I think there's something about Shutter Island. I just kind of it makes it like in, like really rewatchable for me. Like I can put that on, and I'm just like. Cool. Let me see. Let me see what's gonna happen. <laughs> so I'm I'm kind of cheating right now. Um, I got yeah. Indie Wires. They've already made a top 100 of the decade so far, and I'm just scrolling through it. Just not really, you know, just there in the background. Um, I'm glad you brought up Scorsese. He's one of the guys. I know he's in he's in the the conversation right now about the whole is Marvel Cinema thing. Um, but people forget that. He's on the he's on the Mount Rushmore of cinema. Um, my brother texted me the other day, and he was like, "Hey, man, you know the the, the mob is getting to me. People are saying <laughs> that um, Todd Phillips ripped off Scorsese too much when it comes to the Joker. What are your thoughts on that?" And I told him, "I mean, uh, Martin Scorsese was ripping off Robert Brisson, you know, in Taxi Driver. He was ripping off." Hitchcock. I mean, here's yeah. the th- that's the medium, you know? Um, yeah. You look at Shutter Island, like, gosh, th- you know, look at his influences there. You know, they're all over the place. <laughs> like, that's what we all do. That's the, that's the nature of this game. Your dreams have to have inspiration of your waking life. Like, we're constantly mm-hmm. recording, you know, images and feelings. As, that's the kind of creatures we are. So I was just oh. telling them, like, you know, you could say that about any movie. It's a, everything's a remix. And uh, I think he yeah, needed that no, perspective. Sure. And, and, and to go and to briefly talk about Joker real quick, it's like um, Joker. And I got an ice cream like, truck going to, through hmm? my neighborhood. So apologize for that. Okay. No, no. But uh, to go into Joker for, for, for a little bit, the two main Scorsese influences of the movie or Taxi Driver in the King Comedy. And, you know, everyone knows Taxi Driver, but I'm kind of glad that a movie talked about, or not even talked about it, but like kind of shined the light on Kim Comedy. And of course, uh, you know, and it's just like, I went to YouTube and I started watching Kim Comedy Clips just because I was reminded of it. And, and I was reading the comments and I couldn't believe how many of the comments were there because of Joker. And I was thinking like, you know, that's kind of the beauty of cinema. So people can complain yes. about about Todd Phillips ripping off these movies, but she didn't do. You're like, they're not even directed the same way, in my opinion. They're like, he kind of copies like, I guess like beats or like emotional stuff. But like, like, eh, like it, it, to me, it's like, I don't think Scorsese would care. So I don't think he should care. No. <laughs> like, and also, and, and then, you know, like it's, you know, to, you know, I heard Quentin Tarantino say this, but he was stealing it off of, um, what's that French new wave guy? Um, Goddard, right? Godard of it's not about where you think take things from it's about where you take things to and I hate to say this you know people don't want to admit this but I was 16 very impressionable when Kill Bill came out 
I would have never known about Game of Death if it wasn't for Kill Bill. I would have never known about Lady to Snowblood and all these other, you know, John Woo movies that he was stealing from. Like, we elevate and put on a pedestal Tarantino for doing this. You know what I mean? But Todd Phillips does it, and people are like, how dare you? Got to call out no, that it, hypocrisy uh, when you see it. I know, and for sure, and to, and to go to that, like, you know, every film fan is young at one time, you know? So, like, I remember when I was watching Fight Club, and I was like, I don't know where I was reading this, but I was reading that it was very similar to Taxi Driver. And that's how I found, who's, found out who Scorsese was. And it was just one of those things where it's just like, like, no one, like, nobody just grows up and thinking... Like, I'm going to watch Taxi Driver. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they have to kind of discover it. I'm glad you said that. I, I, I discovered Scorsese because of the audio commentary of PTA and Boogie Nights. He was like, yeah, I totally yeah. ripped this off of Goodfellas. And I was like, well, I got to see that. <laughs> yeah. And it, it just, it's just one of those things where it's just like, yeah, like, so I, to me, like, the idea of that, like, a, a film being too, too close to another film is just kind of kind of silly to me and, and and i think it's people that usually say say that aren't necessarily filmmakers you know and i think and i think there is a, a line where a film can be too much like another film but uh it, that wasn't even close you know <laughs> the joker was its own thing and it and it really was in the and if you if you can't compare travis bickle to uh arthur i can't i can't Fleck. think of his name arthur Fleck, right? yeah and <laughs> and you can't compare uh, them to Rupert Pumpkin. So just like, eh, I don't know. It was just, it was, it was, it was an annoying conversation. I thought you were actually going to go a different way, which was, I was like really annoyed on Twitter reading like a bunch of Marvel fans, like attacking Scorsese. And they're like, well, that's the guy who's made nothing but gangster films. And that goes back to earlier where it's just Scorsese has a really interesting career, but sometimes kind of pigeonholed into be the gangster director, you know? And that kind of annoyed me. <laughs> you know, honestly, there's, there's not a better filmmaker that could have said that and had that take. Ari yeah. Aster could have said it and, you know, it wouldn't have mattered. No offense to him. But we needed somebody, we needed somebody on the Mount Rushmore who's one of the best living American filmmakers of all time to say it. And he's still going. Yeah. He, he's, I mean, he's at like, the top of his game. They gave him, like, the departed Oscar and it was kind of like a lifetime achievement award when they gave it to him in 06 and here he is yeah. you know 12 years later or more so and he's made some of his best movies um totally let me ask you um while we're still on the subject of the past decade do you have and not to sound not to be negative but i'm curious um i don't think you expected this question what would you list off as some of the most overrated films of the decade okay I thought you were going to go a different way, and I'm, I'm kind of glad you didn't go that way. But, um, but let me just answer the one where I thought the worst film of the decade for me, and, I, and no one's heard of this movie, so I don't know why I'm going to even talk about it, was an Alex Ross Perry movie called Golden, what was it called? Golden Exit. That's the worst movie I've ever seen. Uh, just want to throw that out there. Worst movie of the decade for me. But, <laughs> but it's, sorry, what what but is it called? It wasn't even like, regarded very highly. So, What's it called? So, uh, it's called? I think it's called Golden Exit. It was, came out, I think, two years ago. It was just like it was a movie that had like nothing to say. And you can tell like, he just wanted to make a New York film. He wanted to make his Woody Allen film and it just nothing, nothing was inside of it. And it was just like, Oh, this is a chore. And it was like, I think it was only like 80 some minutes. It was the longest movie of my life. <laughs> but, um, as far as overrated movies, hmm, you know, and I'm not sure how you felt, feel about this movie. Cause we, we've never talked about it, but, uh, I, I, 
I think of overrated, I think of Ex Machina. I wasn't a fan of that movie. I know a lot of kids uh, who who I met in my screenwriting class who considered that like the best movie. It's like the best movie of the decade, or you know, like they're it's that, it's like this generation, uh, you know, like Nolan. You know, it's like Ex Machina was like <laughs> like like this really surreal, um, not surreal, like cerebral film. You know, but uh, for me, I just never. I never liked it, and uh, I tried watching it again recently, and it's just like, uh, not well, working I'm, for me. I'm but. funny. I'm glad you brought that up because I have noticed that I'm I've gone over a hill, and I'm a little older, and I can <laughs> look down at like the new class of film snobs, which is fine. It's a rite mm-hmm. of passage, you know. It's neither here nor there. And we've talked about this before. How there's this new class, like when we were growing up, the guys were QT, PTA, David Fincher. Um, maybe Nolan, I think he was kind of like the last guy of the new wave. And that yeah. was, those were the guys that they were our guys, Darren Aronofsky, fuckers like that. Yeah. And <laughs> now there's this whole new wave. And I forget the director who, who made, um, Annihilation and who made Ex Machina. Um, Alex you, Yeah. there you go. Him, um, Yorgos Lanthimos, I think is one of those. And, uh, the guy that did Blade Runner. What's his I can't name? think of his name. What is it? Is it Dennis Villeneuve, right? Yes. Villeneuve. <laughs> uh, yeah. These are like the new... The new boards, yeah. The new guys. <laughs> and so I kind of am a bit of a snob, you know, myself when it comes to the movies that they make because they're held at such a high regard and I think they're... I think they're I. Yeah. Like, for, for me, like, if someone said, like, hey, you want to watch some Arrival or some Joker... You better be putting on some Joker because, and and it's funny because it's like, um, it, it's 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 the way like some directors are just kind of, are just kind of like, are like christened I guess like like these, like I I never got what the, those three directors in particular were talking about and what their movies were supposed to be saying and you know and and not to like completely poo poo the new directors like I'm a big Damien Chazelle fan I like First Man a lot I like Whiplash. But there's something about uh, Dennis Villeneuve until Blade Runner. I actually kind of enjoyed Blade Runner a little bit. But yeah, just like just like I, I don't know what these movies are trying to say. They're so brooding and they're so dark. <laughs> and like, and I'm uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's not for me. What, uh, what would you say? Some of the more more great films of the decade for you? Mm. Uh, hmm. I wasn't ready for that. Um, Blade Runner 2049, I thought, was like so impressively mediocre that people yeah. really kind of elevated it to like this instant cult sort of status. But if it had made a billion dollars, I think people would see it for the mediocrity that it is, personally. But the fact that, that, that it sort of like Bond kind of elevates it a little bit. Yeah, and I don't think it really deserves that. Um, what's another... Oh, I don't think this is an overrated movie, but I think it's it's my um, golden exits or whatever that film was. Is Darren yeah. Aronofsky's mother was super upsetting in so many <laughs> ways. Um, yeah, I, I anybody that mentions that, I don't trust them. I completely yeah. lose trust in their taste immediately. Um, what? Well, uh, and we, I don't think we've ever talked about this movie, or if, we, or if we have, but I remember after 
his last movie. I think it was Noah, right? Noah. Yeah. But you had told you had, you had told me that his his free his free pass for life is kind of maybe coming to an end. Was was Mother a tipping point, or does is there, is there Aronofsky still have like that? Yeah. That so I, I, mean, I so I have two passes uh, <laughs> when it comes to filmmakers. Um, you if you've Okay, here's an example. Joss Whedon gets a lifetime credit for me because he has a co-writing credit in Toy Story. Yeah. Period. So whatever he makes, I'll watch it. Period. Um, Steve McQueen in 2009 with Hunger, te- I give him a 10-year credit. Or for the next 10 <laughs> oh, years, yeah. I'm going to watch all your shit. His 10-year credit is up, but I have not seen Widows, which I... I it. I'm going to watch it because <laughs> hunger was that fucking good. Um, so yeah. Darren had a 10 year life credit, which is up um, from the fountain. Um, okay. The fountain's a fucking masterpiece. Like no ifs, ands or buts about it. It's a masterpiece, but I guess it was a fluke. I mean, I don't know how he pulled it off or I don't know. He's definitely one of those guys that likes the smell of his own farts. Um, <laughs> you know, and I don't want to make this like such a negative thing, but um you know, goddamn, like we're talking about best of the decade, mother, throw that shit in the trash. I mean, we're talking about boyhood. We're talking about Mad Max Fury Road, like real fucking life changing, you know, movies that define the decade. And, you know, and nothing that Denny Villeneuve has made is up there. Um, another underrated movie that just came out. So there's a recency bias. And I wanted to ask you if you if you actually got to see it was. Alfonso Cuarón's Roma. Did you ever check that out? You know, <laughs> I haven't. It's and heavy. It's, it's, it's heavy. And it's a, uh, I wouldn't even call it a foreign film for you and me because, you know, yeah. we grew up with the language, yeah, but sure. um, it's, you know, it's a heavy one and it's black and white. So I, I do understand, you know, I know you're, you know, you probably should have saw it in theater. I definitely think you would have checked it out. Yeah. Uh, oh, a, a couple I, honorable I, mentions that I just want to rattle off the list so people can know that, these movies truly affected me um, was inside Lewin Davis was a big one for me. Um, Harmony Corinne's spring breakers, which I watched with you and thank you for that. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. Olivia Oseas personal shopper. Uh, that one was like a there be blood. Like, Oh my God, I got to go back to this and watch it again. As soon as I left the theater, Claire, Claire thought we we're going to watch a rom-com because we went into it blind. And boy, was she was just like, when is this going to get funny? because you know i don't think she saw it in in kirsten stewart but um that's really funny but i have to just rattle those off the list and oh scott pilgrim with edgar wright um that one's very huge and 2010 was a pretty good year um you know christopher nolan i I mentioned um inception you know jesus like i'm still we're still dealing with it (laughs) oh yeah we are yeah (laughs) yeah No, and, and, and uh, to talk about Nolan for a little bit, because like I, uh, and and again, I'm not sure what Nolan film is like his his movie of the decade, but but he had another interesting decade. Then he he comes he comes out with Inception, Dark Knight Rises. Uh, what was that movie after Dark Knight Rises? Did he do in, oh, Interstellar and and, and, and Dunkirk. then Dunkirk? Yeah, and uh, he's probably you know he's he kind of suffers from that Spielberg thing where he's gotten so famous that. He's kind of gotten hate from some some corners of the internet, yeah. but like me, I'm, I give him heat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you do, and so does mm-hmm. a lot of film Twitter. But 
I kind of like Interstellar a lot. I think that's kind of my favorite of, of his of this decade. I I, uh, I can kind of see every single flaw into it, but it's it's a it's a really good movie. And I was talking to my brother, and I said this to him, and I think Nolan is kind of he wants to think of himself as like this like really smart Kubrickian filmmaker, and I think that's why he makes these like really intense movies. Like Dunkirk has like no plot. <laughs> right. It's like, and it's like, what is going on? But, but for me, I, I see his Spielberg influence and I'm like, just, just go into that, man. Like he's so good at, at that, but you just don't want to be that guy. And I understand yeah. it, but like an in interstellar when like McConaughey is like crying as he's like talking to his, or he's watching those videos of his daughter. I'm like, whoo, whoo, that hits me, man. But you know, he's just, he, he doesn't, he doesn't lean into it too much, but, but I think uh, Nolan is just kind of an interesting director. He, like, and sometimes like, I think, the more famous the director is, like the more interesting it is to kind of like really examine what they're trying to do with their work. At least, at least for me. Yeah. <laughs> when you were mentioning Damien Chazelle, you, you really hopped over La La Land there. Oh yeah. Really were you did. a fan? <laughs> Was I a fan of La La Land? Uh, at first, no. And then, and then I disliked it. And then I saw it again. <laughs> I saw it three times for some reason. Uh, not, not like in theaters, but you know, like I see it on TV or say, you know, and, um, I kind of liked it the third time. And I think, uh, when I first saw La La, La Land, I think, I think I, I let the, the musical part of the movie kind of bother me too much. I think, I think I just couldn't get into like the fact that Ryan Gosling and Emerstone couldn't dance <laughs> things like that. But, um, <laughs> but, but, you know, that ending is probably the best ending he's ever done and probably one of the better endings of the decade, you know? So La La Land has to be considered like a good movie if it has an ending I consider really effective. But, but you know, for, for me, I think, I think The First Man is like his movie, you know? And uh, I was talking to, to Dave about it because Dave was like the only other guy that saw it besides me. <laughs> so I talked to Dave and Dave was like, oh, it's like the most boring film ever. And it's so dry, and it's so this and that, and I'm like, ugh, okay, he doesn't, he didn't, he didn't like it as much as I did. But the first man, it just like, uh, it does everything I like, you know. It's like this underdog story. This guy has a big traumatic event, and he's really sad, and he's trying to like hide away. And uh, I'm not sure if you ever saw the movie, but there's this really effective scene, uh, like in the middle, where he's just kind of like, everything is kind of crashing in on him at a at a, at a party, and he walks away. And he goes back to his backyard and one of his friends comes and he's like, Hey, what's going on, Neil? Like, are we cool? And Neil's like, I didn't walk away so I can talk to anyone. I walked away to be alone. And I was like, Oh man, like that's how I feel so much. You know? <laughs> so that's when wow. I kind of knew the movie it was kind of hitting me that hard. I need to see it. It's on HBO. Um, it has all the ingredients on paper for something that I would definitely like. I want to check it out. Um, just a couple of things on La La Land because it's a movie I was very cynical walking into. Like, I didn't want to feel good. I was in a pretty dark place at the time. And um, it was infectious. It made me feel good. It was a happy pill. Um, you know, those two stars have so much... Um, they're just so beautiful. <laughs> you know, it's nice to see really good-looking, crazily good-looking people on screen have chemistry. It reminds mm -hmm. you of the good old days when movie stars were real. And the thesis of the movie for me is like magic is only real at the cinema. It does not exist mm -hmm. in real life. 
It, it, it mm-hmm. doesn't. And we go to the movies to escape and to celebrate in the magic. And it's the only place where we're all in the same dream. And that's really lovely. And that is very rare for a mainstream thesis in, in nowadays, you know? And, um, so I really loved it for that. Um, I don't know I w- if I made a top 50, I don't think it would make the list of the decade. Um, I don't think it's like hashtag essential viewing. Um, but something like inherent vice is for me, but I, <laughs> it's completely inaccessible. It's like telling someone yeah. to read Moby Dick, you know? So <laughs> it's kind of hard, no, but, um, yeah, no, in- inherent vice is one of those movies. So it's just like, and like, like, man, I don't even have to explain to you how big of a PTA fan I, I am, but the first time I saw it, and I've never said this publicly, I've never said it privately, I didn't like it. Yeah. And I was, just so, I was so confused, and I was just like, what the heck did I just see? And uh, my buddy Andrew, we watched it like the next day, and he was like, it might be his best movie. And I'm like, get out of here. Get yeah. that contrarian stuff out of here. And I, was yeah. just, I, wasn't, I wasn't in it. And then they came out on Blu-ray, and I rewatched it, and I was like, "Oh crap! That movie, <laughs> that movie might be as good as, as like some people say it is." And it's one of those movies where it's just like, you gotta like, you gotta pay attention, but like not really. And it's just it's so hard to like explain to people why the movie works, and like and how funny it is. It's like really funny, <laughs> and like people. <laughs> and how smart and, uh, it is without and, making you feel well maybe pe- some people do feel dumb i guess i don't know but it's so intelligently told and it doesn't hold you by the hand to be like no that's who this character who you'll never see that's who they are you need to know that it doesn't do that you know but but like pulp fiction doesn't do that either but it's told in a really pop culture sort of funny way so we let we let all these characters that are just mentioned on screen, but never really seen. We just buy into that world. But for some reason, the same thing with the, like the big Lebowski, right? Like there's so much off camera that's in the universe. Um, inherent vice is kind of like that. And so you would think it would work, you know, based on like the stellar cast, but you know, for some reason it didn't connect with people, but I, yeah. I feel that way, how you felt. And I know it's a hard thing to say publicly about once upon a time in Hollywood. Like I liked it. I get it. I love, you know, entire sequences of it, but I walked away from it. Like I didn't love it the way I loved death proof, the way I loved Inglorious Bastards and Django and Kill Bill and so on. But so that's kind of, but you know, that's not a hot take. I think a lot, I think a lot of people actually felt that way because it's yeah. the most un Tarantino movie but I wouldn't. I wouldn't put it anywhere the, near the top of the decade. Like it was such a brush, uh, such a breath of fresh air, and I love all the stuff that it's doing. I'm watching it again tonight at my Cinema Seven because I want to get it in, <laughs> you know, for at, at the theater experience. But you know, I'll be I'll be surprised if I liked it more than I did the first time. I walked away from it feeling like I lovely. It was a very lovely experience, but also not a lot of depth, like not a lot of replay value for me, unfortunately. So, but this might be an inherent vice situation is what I'm saying, you know, and I'll go back and be like, Oh my God, it's just, I don't know. Who knows? We'll see. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll see. And, and, and it's, uh, it's interesting because we had only text about once upon a time and you're very vague on text. Like, it's like, you liked it or not. 
Uh-huh. But I had this feeling that you, you didn't like it. And I was just like, I got to talk to Nivers about that soon. Uh, well, I, I, I also need time, right? Because there's so many yeah. articles and like think pieces on like the weekend a movie comes out. And it's like, dude, no, I need to chew on this for months, years, like to really know where I land. Like, um, oh. at some, I'm like you, like I've seen a movie. It was okay. Saw it again. Didn't like it. Saw it again. I liked it even less. Saw it one more time and it broke through. And I was like, I love this movie. That's happened a lot. So, and it's also the exact opposite where I see something and I'm like, what did I ever like about this? It sucks. Like sometimes I feel that way about the shining. Sometimes I'm like, the shining is like the Zenith, the apex of filmmaking. And sometimes I'm like, Whoa, this is low key trash. (laughs) So it's weird depending on my mood. Um, that's why if I'm ever vague, it's cause I don't want to put something, you know, I don't want to have my, my, yeah, in print, like that I can't take it back. Like I'm constantly almost always changing my mind that way. No, and it's so true. And it, it, this reminded me of that one time. And for the life of me, I can't remember the title of the movie, but it was the guy who did District 9 and Chappie. He did a movie that wasn't one of those two. Elysium. I can't remember. Elysium, yes. And I, I saw it on a midnight screening and I loved it. It was like the greatest thing I've ever seen. I remember I know this. it wasn't a midnight. It was, it was a critic screening. Yeah. And it was like the, it was the best thing I'd ever seen. I was like, whoa. I got to tell everyone to watch it. And I think I, t- I told you and a couple more friends that like yeah. it was the greatest thing ever. Yeah. And then you had watched it and you were like, why would, did you lie to me? And I was like, what do you mean I lied to you? That was fucking sickest shit ever. And then, and then I, I convinced another friend of mine to watch it. And I watched it again and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I was like, this movie's got a trash. Oh no. <laughs> so embarrassed. I was so embarrassed by like how much I hyped that movie up and <laughs> yeah. it was just like not good. <laughs> I don't know if that's happened to me. You let me know if that's happened to me. I don't know. But, you know, I pride myself in the exact opposite of that. It, it's something has had to have fallen through the cracks. But, you know, you just brought me back to Elysium, which I believe was 2013. And yeah. Jodie Foster's terrible English accent, which she did. She just did not give a fuck. <laughs> Like, I, I was watching her scenes and thinking, was there no script? And you never need, want to have those thoughts when you're watching a movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, That so. was a bad one, JR. No. But I'll let it, yeah. sli- I'll let it slide. I'll let it slide. I well, forgave you, and I, I trust you again. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's just one of those things where it's just like, you know, I think, I think you, you kind of learn how to, like, temper expectations. Like, for me, like, I usually knock out, like, because I use Letterbox a lot. So I usually knock a half a star for a movie after I see it, just because I know I'm kind of overhyped for some reason. Like, I, man, there's sometimes where it's just after the movie and you're just like, well, no, it's pretty good. And then like two days later, I'm like, wait, what did I like about that movie? So, uh-huh. so you kind of learn how to like not use the high of the movie to kind of like talk about the movie sometimes. And it's just like, uh, and movies do kind of get you high. <laughs> like for me, like yeah. even like really mediocre movies can get me like high. Like, so I saw, I saw Jojo Rabbit, which I really liked, you know, but I also know that, you know, I'm kind of a prisoner in the moment after I watched it. And I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta kind of look back and kind of like read the room about what I really did like about it. Cause you only see a movie once for the first time, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So like some of those like things that hit you can only hit you once. <laughs> and, and, uh, and yeah, I think with Elysium, it, it, it kind of was the perfect example of like, I really wanted to see a movie that tackled like, like those issues. And I didn't even care about anything else. And I was so tunnel vision. And I was like, that movie is everything I wanted to see. And like, now I'm just kind of embarrassed that I, <laughs> that I liked that movie at all because 
you know, and I'm sure that director is, is fine, but he's kind of like proven himself to be kind of like, I don't want to say a hack, but you know what I mean? Like, what has he really done since District 9, you know? Yeah. Um, what was like his most recent movie? It wasn't Chappie, was it? Chappie, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. You know, um, <laughs> I've never bought, it's strange. Like, I really believe like a great movie can be compared to any great movie, which is to say like you can compare uh, Edge of Tomorrow with Tom Cruise. You can compare that to The Godfather. Like, I think it's, I think it's good. I think it's really good. Um, yeah. Or something like Pacific Rim. You can compare that to any other kaiju movie or whatever, like any sort of high art. Like, I think it's that good. Um, so I'm all for like kind of Elysium was sort of like almost video game you know, um, sort of like headshot, like, Oh, that's fun in the moment. Like a very visceral sort of experience. I can see that. Um, and so if something's great, it should, it, it should be contrasted against any other great thing. If it's truly great. Um, sometimes things are like really good for what they are. I don't know if I would consider them great in an objective sense, if that makes, I feel like we're splitting hairs here, but do you know what I mean? Yeah, and uh, to kind of keep with this, like, the theme of the podcast, like, what do you think of, because you had mentioned Once Upon a Time and, like, the media around it, and we talked about Joker, and, of course, there was a huge media circus around that. Yeah. And uh, and JoJo, I would say JoJo's kind of, JoJo Rabbit's kind of seeing that right now, too. Or not right now, but after TIFFs and stuff. And uh, what do you think of, the, of like, the, the way critics review movies nowadays? You, you, I'm not sure if, that, if that's too vague or if you get what I'm trying to I'm glad you're. Here. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, well, let me say this: um, critics, like the role and the job of a critic, in my opinion. Let's. I don't even want to personally attack critics and why they're critics. I don't know. There's probably cynical reasons that I could give that I don't think are entirely true. Um, but I think the sole role for a critic is part of the, the sales brigade, the sales cycle of a movie. So, uh, yeah. so really like it's a business industry plant that is there. Like if you ever see, and you see them more than me, like take, a, a the trailer for whoever the filmmaker is, I forget, um, Parasite. And you see like how they, how they book the movie with critic reviews sells the movie. Right. That's what it's intended for. That to me is kind of like the old fashioned um, field that the critics supposed to play in. I don't think it I, now I think you take a, a voice like Roger Ebert. Now everybody has that voice. So it penetrates as much as his voice used to. So your average, you know, film Twitter critic asshole now has a loud voice and they can get um, responses that agree with them in their echo chamber, and so they think they're valid, and so they think they have taste, and they're, they're validated for that on a consistent basis. And so some of these penetrate and permeate throughout the culture, and people take very, very seriously. Here's an example. Um, I think it was Vice that said Dave Chappelle's special. Like, yeah. you, don't, you, you can pass. You don't need to watch it. Now, that's like, like a critic, one pr- writer you know, propelled by a machine saying that got everybody up in arms. 
Like that to me is not like there is an art form in criticism, film criticism. And like that headline sort of short, um, shorthand is not part of the art for me. Like the headline part of that. So I kind of have a natural knee jerk reaction to reject that. And I will say for my own peace of mind, you know, I never read a think piece about Once Upon a Time Hollywood, and I have not, even though it's tempting to see like these think pieces, sort of film thesis, video essays on Joker. I haven't because I'm still forming my own opinion. This is a relationship that I have with the movie and I don't need someone telling me whether or not they think my girlfriend is pretty while I'm dating her. Like, I don't give a fuck what anybody <laughs> thinks. Like, I'm in this. So, but after the hype and the conversation dies down, I go in. Now, another example, um, there's this, I call her the smartest um, female critic on the internet. Her name's Lindsay Ellis, and she creates video essays. And she created a two-hour two-part video essay on Game of Thrones, and it completely changed how I viewed the movie. I'm sorry, the show. And I waited for the hype and everything to die, and it's no longer in the zeitgeist. You know, it's not in the conversation in the pop culture sense. And and so I was able to, you know, open that door on my own, on my own terms, and, and objectively have some sort of remove and say, oh, oh, shit, this final season was was trash, you know, yeah. but I, as I was watching it, was ex- you know, I was just letting my feelings take over, not letting everybody else dictate what I'm supposed to feel. That's not the job of a film critic to answer your question. Like, in my opinion, it's not the job, which is to tell me how to feel. They're there yeah. to either sell the movie or tell me not to watch the movie. That's their fucking job. That's what they get paid for. <laughs> They get paid either well or not well for that. I don't care. That's part of the industry. They're they're there like agents. They're there like, you know, limo drivers. I'm just being serious. Like it's a utilitarian role. Um, but since everybody has a loud voice now, everybody kind of can fake putting film critic in their Twitter bio. People buy that. That I don't let that affect my initial response for a a piece i can't and i don't and i never have here's another example to kind of tie it you know for something that we both loved nobody i don't care what anybody says nobody got the master not even roger ebert got the master when that movie came out because i'd go i had like a you know surprisingly low rating on rotten tomatoes it was like a 78 or something and mm-hmm. I, you know, people are like, "This was not the Scientology thing that we thought it was going to be." And I'm like, "That's not a criticism. Yeah. The movie never aspired to do that. It's in the DNA, but like, it's not doing that. So leave that out of the discourse. Like, but it's all these other faux. I'm sorry, I'm like way on this tangent, but it's all these other fake no, people no. that think they're critics that put it in the bio that are giving these opinions and like, in my opinion, kind of hurt the potential financial success." and true impact that that movie could have had. And I'm a little salty because it's my favorite movie of the decade, but you know, (laughs) I I think too many people get a free pass and like, just get the same, um, you know, they're, they're, they hurt a movie or they can make a movie. And, um, ultimately time is the arbiter. Like, look, let's be real. Martin Scorsese, better taste than you or me has contributed more to the planet than you or me probably ever will, you know? Um, 
And so I, I let him have his fucking day in court, you know? But at the same time, the ultimate, the ultimate arbiter is going to be time. Like, let's see what people think about Captain Marvel in 10 years. Uh, yeah. Time is like the real critic. Like, people did not appreciate, you know, gosh, um, 2001 A Space Odyssey when it came out. I know it's kind of a cop-out, but it's true. People didn't really, really appreciate Raising Arizona when it came out. 10 years later, people are like, oh, my fucking God, this is it, right? So things take time. Let things age, you know? I've changed my mind on Inception 40 times, you know? But, but that's the relationship <laughs> that I have with that movie, not with somebody else, you know, who pretends to be a, a critic is telling me how to feel period. Yeah. No, I, and, uh, so yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't even know he would, you would, uh, you had that strong feeling because I was thinking about it way on a smaller level, but Sorry. like, <laughs> oh. no, 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 no. But that was good. Cause that kind of gets to what I feel about it in some ways. It's like going to Joker. Right. So I think every critic before they saw it at, at TIFF or, or, or Venice, I think it debuted at Venice. Or, I don't yeah. know if it was TIFF where it got like the bad backlash. Well, the American perspective, it, the American perspective, because yeah. people in, yeah. in Venice, you know, in Europe, let's it, say, yeah. tend to like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so but when, when critics saw it in TIFF, I think they had gotten into their mind that this was the, you know, the, the alt-right incel masterpiece that, that like a frat boy was making, you know? And, and, um, and they wrote it like that. And I, I you know, I, unlike you, I, I do kind of look at the reviews and I kind of see what people say. And when I saw Joker, I was kind of thrown off because it wasn't anything like what they described. And I was just like, huh, why do they like build these like fake narratives about movies? You know what I mean? And, it, and, it, and it's so annoying. Like, uh, and this movie is already gone and this movie has been trashed. But like, like, I really like Gemini, man. It came out <laughs> like a week ago. Right. And it. And like, people were making fun. Hmm? And, uh, oh. People were making fun of Ang Lee for trying something new with with cameras and and frame rates and all that stuff, and you know, blowing it up to like a big mass level. And and I was kind of interested in, in like hearing that conversation. But you know, people are just so so quick to like write off and what a director's trying to do. <laughs> and it, and it just uh, it's it's bizarre how how critics kind of like they find an angle and even if the angle is not correct, they just kind of jam it in there. And I think a good critic, and I do think there's good critics, they can kind of take a, take a step back and kind of talk about what the film was really trying to say. And, um, but unfortunately, like with Twitter and social media now, it's just kind of like, like you need to have this outrageous take in order to get noticed. And, and it's usually not the best takes that get noticed. It's like calling, saying that Joker is going to like cause a mass shooting, even though the movie's not really like that. And, and it's just like, uh, I don't know. It, it really is tiresome when a movie hasn't even come out yet and critics are trying to like frame the discussion, you know, and it does happen, you know, like that's happened to Joker, unfortunately. And it happened to, it's happening to Jojo Rabbit, unfortunately. And it's just like, it's just how, how the media is. And it, and it really is, it really does make me worried about, about like the future. Like I was reading this YouTube comment and, and like, and I know I shouldn't like get, get too much from YouTube comments, but the YouTube comment was like, Oh man, I never watch movies. I just like reading about the reactions. And I just kind of like, like it's sung, you know, because I know a lot of people probably think that way. And it's just like, man, how many people miss like forming their own opinion just because like they think this part of 
of film is like the most valid, I guess, you know? So I, I pulled up something that Pauline Kale, who was arguably one of the you know, most insightful film critics ever, she, something she said about um, Jean-Luc Godard's A Band of Par. And here's the quote. She's reviewing the movie. She says, It's as if a French poet took an ordinary, banal American crime novel and told it to us in terms of the romance and beauty he read between the lines. That is to say, Godard gives it his imagination, recreating the gangsters and the mall with his world of associations, seeing them as people in a Paris cafe, mixing them with Rimbaud, Kafka, Alice in Wonderland. So that's one sentence, and she's elevating the material. She's taking what Godard did and like really contrasting it with her taste and, sh- and kind of making you, I mean, not only selling the movie, but making you want to go back to that. Fil- yeah. You know, real good film critics, film critics. I can't talk about, you know, sports analysts and other people that can judge something that's less subjective as art, but film critics are really meant to, you know, sell the material or, or raise the material. Like one thing Roger Ebert, I'll always remember when he was reviewing Lars von Trier's 2009 Antichrist said, porn, pornography is in the eye of the beholder, right? Because that movie caused this big uproar because it had a penis in it or whatever. And <laughs> when a film critic drops a bar like that, like, you know, it truly elevates the actual movie. And uh, sadly, and I'm tied this back in to, you know, the incel stuff from Joker. Um, look, let's be honest, like companies like BuzzFeed, Vice, um, IndieWire, things like that, they're selling clicks. So if they say this movie is the alt-right, you know, fucking flag-waving, whatever, people are going to click it and they're going to sell ads and they're going to make money. That's the business that they're in. So it's very self-aggrandizing, self-masturbatory. They're trying to get their shit in with their their headlines. It's what they do. They don't make money from the movie – they make money from the outrage or from the controversy. So since that's incentivized, um, sadly, they're encouraged to um, create more and more and more sort of visceral um, responses. And I think that's, unfortunately, like, get that out of my movie. Like, get that out of my movie (laughs) experience. Um, I've yet to deep dive into the 47 Easter exit you missed in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I I haven't looked. Because I'm not done with it yet, you know, before people tell me, before they take the piss out of it, I'm not done with it. So there's a difference between critics like elevating the material and really, you know, um, putting it into perspective. And, you know, and there's a difference between big companies that are incentivized by outrage. You know, I hate to pull that card. It's such a cop out. But if there wasn't money in it, I don't know if we'd be seeing it. Yeah, and and I'm in a. I think I, I agree with you there, and that and that's kind of the disappointed, like trend of like where things are right now with the, with the not, not just like film criticism, but like you know, Twitter and all that stuff. Like the way Twitter's like algorithm works, I'm just like always mad when I get on Twitter, so I try to avoid it sometimes. <laughs> it's just like a, yeah, and like you know, I, so. I I've been off Twitter. Um, I've deleted the app, so I have to you know take the extra step and go on my computer and log in and all that, which is, you know, I'm less likely to do so. And, um, 
all of a sudden I started feeling better about myself and I was kind of suspicious about that. I'm like, why do I feel so good? Maybe it has something to do with, you know, not completely comparing myself and my taste or whatever to other people. You know, like if I had to do that in high school every day, I'd be fucking miserable. So if I can help myself, I, I won't do it. Um, but yeah, man. So I, I, I don't know if you have anything else that you want to uh, rattle off while we're still talking about the top stuff of the decade. Um, do you still listen? This is going to sound weird. This but going to sound uh, weird. Do you still listen to music? Do I still listen to music? Um, I listen to Kanye West, and that's about it. Gotcha. I wasn't sure if you could you know, talk about maybe the top albums of the decade for you. No, no. Um, you know, I guess I, list, I used to listen to music, and I, and I uh, kind of transitioned to just listening to podcasts recently. Or, like, not recently, but five years ago. So I, I, at one time, I was a big music listener. Like, I'm a big fan of, uh, uh, like, Vampire Weekend, Modern Vampire. Uh, or I forgot the title name, but, like, whatever that. The, the, not the newest album, which was also good, but the album the previous, I liked that one a bunch. And then, obviously, like, anything Kanye West did this decade for me was just, oof, forget about it. And then uh, I liked Frank Ocean's. Uh, Channel Orange, that was kind of like a, a kind of a defining album for me when I first moved out of uh, Westlaco. It was just kind of like, whoa, that that's like this, that's the sound of music to come. Uh, I was also a big fan of uh, Kendrick Lamar's Good Kid, Mad City. That was much like Channel Orange. They both came out like relatively the same time. It was like yeah. these move, uh, these this, these these albums that I just heard on repeat in my car all the time. So, so yeah, it was an interesting decade in music. Like I guess like. I don't listen to music as much, but I'm still always like surrounded by it. Like, cause how could you not? And it's just kind of, it's weird seeing the trends of music, like, like what's popular and what isn't like that old town road, which was like, <laughs> that's the number one song of the, of the year for like 18, 18 weeks in a row, whatever. <laughs> it's just, it's kind of, it's kind of bizarre seeing like, like how meme culture and song culture has kind of like mixed in some ways like that. That, uh, you know, there's so many songs like that, like, like Black Beetle, remember that song where it was just like a meme, and then it was also like the biggest song of the year. I don't know. So in that way, like I find like the transition of what music has been doing is really interesting because like you have like these mega stars, and then you also have like these SoundCloud SoundCloud rappers. And I don't know. It's all above my above my head, but but like the albums I mentioned were probably like the the albums that stuck out to me the most. What about you? You know, I was so guilty of I listened to what I listened to in high school, and I never went beyond that. Um, I graduated in 2006. So from 2006 to 2015, I listened to the same shit. Um, Iron Maiden, Radiohead, Nirvana, um, Kanye, but you know, but also like Eminem, like old Eminem and like just weird, like music kind of took a backseat for me because it was kind of just more of the same, but it was, uh, in 2015 and not that this song came out then, but I, it really connected with me then, but Miley Cyrus's Wrecking Ball, I heard and was like, Ooh, this is pop music right now. Like this is pretty good. And so I went, you know, I remember I, I asked people online, like, should I get Apple music, Spotify, Pandora? Like, what should I get? I landed on Spotify and I just started making playlists and you can go into any song. Like you can go into, um, you know, Frank ocean and put it on the song and, um, but then go into the radio version of a particular song and it'll take you down a whole nother universe. And uh, I like that feature in Spotify quite a bit. Like the, the eight-year-old me who used to record music off, off the radio on, video, you know, on tape 
to create my own mixtapes, like the fact that everything's so accessible is really exciting. Um, but 2015, I kind of got back into music and, you know, I have to balance my podcast obsession with listening to music. And so I'm always creating new playlists and I'm always listening to new things and finding new waves. But music is just like, as much as I think film has been disrupted, like music was, I don't know when it broke. You could argue Napster, <laughs> sure, but maybe it took a little while time after that. Apple's doing away with iTunes. I think that's gonna have I think that's gonna have a big ripple effect on how we think about music. But um yeah, there's just so many albums. Um you mentioned Good Kid Mad City. We have to talk about uh uh My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy by Kanye West. But not just in hip hop, like there's been a lot of good albums um beyond that. Um and I saw like a top 100, you know, the songs of the decade. And like Kendrick had like all his discography was on there. And he was a gift that came <laughs> from this past decade. Um, and I can't even yeah. think about this past decade without thinking about him, without thinking about um, this act that I discovered a couple years ago named Grimes. I love her. Um, without thinking about a few other people that just stick to me as like really not just texturally when I think about this past decade, but musically, you know, I, when I discover a new album or a new playlist or a new vibe, I really listen to it a lot. And then, you know, like April through August, 2019 will always be solidified in my neurons with that music. And so five years from now I can listen to that playlist again and I'm transported back, you know, in time. And so I encourage you, if you don't, you know, listen to some music, walk around New York City and like, it's, you know, I write scripts and movies like to music. As soon as I build a playlist, it's like making a Pinterest board and I have like a storyboard of music and then I start writing and characters come out of that and stuff like that. So we have always done it. But um, yeah, so I just had to had to mention that because you can't talk about you know, the internet and pop culture without talking about music. It's just like you said, the memification of things, you know, it affects, it affects the culture for sure. Yeah. And, uh, I would like to get, to, to get out of like old culture, like music and movies and, and movies still is my, my go-to. That's like my number one, my number one drug till the end of time, probably. But, uh, YouTube came out last decade. Some people don't know that, but it was like, it was, it was pretty big back in those days, like 2006, seven, eight. And, uh, and it's, it's so interesting seeing how like YouTube's changed over the years. Cause you wouldn't think a site could change so much, but it really has. Like, I, I feel, I watch more YouTube than ever, but I feel like there's a big loss of community. I'm not sure if you have felt that too, or maybe I'm just not young enough to even like care about the community anymore, but I just remember, like, when I would watch, like, like you know, like a like a Dax Flame video or something, like an old YouTuber. I felt like I knew Dax Flame fans and like, or I knew like Lisa Nova fans or something. And just kind of seeing like how YouTube has changed now, where it's just like I'm watching like random videos of like movie clips or TV clips or like TV shows, and and I, I wonder if like. If, if like, real filmmakers, or not even filmmakers, but, like, I don't know what the word is, but I, I feel like YouTube's kind of lost, like, a sense of, uh, of realness, if that makes sense. What, what, how do you feel about YouTube? Because you actually still make YouTube videos. I've kind of gotten yeah. out of that racket. It's <laughs> but, weird, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, I will say that I'm one of those, I mean, I'm 31, right? So um, I guess it's not that weird to say. Um, but, you know, I've been making YouTube videos for, you know, since since 2006. I know it came out in 05, but I didn't really have the, the bandwidth to do that until 2006. And um, my Knives Monroe YouTube channel just celebrated its 12-year anniversary. And so I've been making videos for 12 years very inconsistently and i have a thousand subs <laughs> you know it's really sad um but i still make them because honestly like it's my legacy you know people are going to go back and and you know if they want to hear my voice they they'll go back and they'll they'll youtube me you know it is what it is but um i actually think we're on two different youtubes and for that matter everybody's on a different internet um because I think the culture has, has never been stronger. And I think the community okay. has never been deeper. Um, but we, we also might be on different internets as well. You know, we have a different echo chamber. The algorithm is more a reflection of, of your cerebrum than it is mine. Um, but I can say that I can remember the 2006 YouTube, which was just one homepage. And as soon as you uploaded a video, it was pushed to the queue. And so you, your, your discoverability was so small. This is pre-Google pre acquisition. Like, it was way easier to get to kind of pop. Um, and I, I miss how, you know, how easy it was to get over on YouTube from a creator standpoint. But I really have more of a creator perspective than I do like a consumer. But I do sub to like a new person every day. And if I really care about them, I'll sub to, I'll hit the bell and I want to be notified when they make a video. Like Rogan, when Rogan has Alex Jones, I know in one minute and I'm there for it, you know. Um, but yeah, YouTube became the biggest platform. Like it, it hurts movies and the box office and Netflix and everything more than anything it does live sports as well. Like, you know, it's so accessible and I can say like in my household, I have the, the 13, 14 year old perspective and the five year old girl perspective too. That's all they watch because they can find whatever they want and they just go down the recommended feed. And, um, I will say my daughter's very bright, you know, um, and she picks up quirks and things that she discovers on the internet. And it's heavily monitored. Like, I don't, if I always e ever see anything suspicious on it, I block that shit. And, you know, it's very curated. And uh, I also pay for YouTube premium, so she doesn't get any ads. So she's not bombarded to buy stuff. But, you know, people still make content that's centered around consumer culture. But um, I, I'll tell you, like, here's the thing. Um, and we don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, but it, cause it's really super inside baseball, but the upside of YouTube is its distribution model. Um, it's hard, you know, I'm in the middle of making a, a movie for this year and it's so hard to think about the, um, the, how does this movie make money? You know, cause am I, am I going to sell tickets Am I selling this thing online? I don't. Be, I personally, me, don't believe in the film festival. You know, Sundance. My, I'm gonna. My, my career is gonna blow up. Trajectory. That's not. I don't really think that's gonna happen for me. I don't buy into it. Um, especially with YouTube, when such great quality is on YouTube for free, how can you have the audacity to charge people to buy your product? 
when you're at our level. Um, so I really believe in a way like to kind of not necessarily like a killed indie filmmaking, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like it's hard for me to compete with that when, when Netflix for nine ninety nine a month, like you buy an entire library, you know, how am mm-hmm. I supposed to charge $10 a ticket to someone for someone to buy one indie movie? Like I, I can't. So like the game becomes like, how do you cheaply tell stories to eventually get to a place where you can monetize so you can tell a bigger story that's more expensive, but how do you monetize that? Right. So that's kind of my relationship with YouTube right now. It's, it's very uh, educational. Like I want to learn something. There was a lady the other day on my block whose car stopped in the middle of the road and, you know, we're trying to move her car. It's one of those, you push the button to turn it on so it doesn't have the key. And so meanwhile, we're trying to figure out, well, how do you put this thing on neutral if we can't push the button? So we're YouTubing it. I mean, that's incredible, right? Like we're, that's yeah. incredible that we can even do, we have these little micro computers in our pockets that, you know, we can do that. Like that's, so there's, there's the utilitarian aspect of YouTube that I appreciate. It has its place, but just from like a, a straight up entertainment escapism value, like, I don't know how anybody at our level, the creative middle to lower class, like how does anybody make money off of their art, like off of their own art? The only way to do it is to become a brand and, you know, and um, sell Squarespace ads or something on YouTube, like, or sell shirts. And I'm not in, I'm not in the um, apparel game. I'm not in the selling ads for, I'm not, I'm not into that. I don't care about that. So it's hard, man. Like you really have to believe in, um, you have to ask yourself, like how would JJ Abrams, Christopher Nolan, Quentin Tarantino, PTA, how would those guys, well, how would they leverage the platform? Like that, you know, I know I look at everything as just like as a filmmaker, but I can't help myself. Like that's really the key. And I'm still, that's why I still make YouTube videos. I'm trying to unlock it. Yeah. And, 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 and going back to, to like this point you made like earlier about like I remember that also like YouTube videos just gotten like really good like you know I'm like I've, I've never been against the quality of YouTube like but I remember when I first started watching YouTube videos like people would just watch people would sing whole songs dubbed you know like like the biggest video at, at one time on YouTube was like two guys singing along to Pokemon yeah <laughs> and that was just that was entertainment <laughs> yeah so, so it's just it's just real interesting to see like how how much the bar has like risen, but it's also like not as fun sometimes. Like, like I, I remember when me and Marcus would like make these videos and we'd kind of like, we knew how to play the YouTube system to get like thousands of views on our videos. Yeah. And it'd be like, well, cool. We got like 2000 videos to watch us like mess around in the woods. You know, like it's, it's like the silliest thing. Like watch like two kids, like make a really poorly done movie. <laughs> but we got, we got to go to watch and like, and like now, like we get like, you know, like 40, 60 views or whatever, because we don't really promote the videos, at least uh, the last year we did. And, and it's just like, it's such a, it's been such an interesting thing about YouTube, right? For, for me, at least, it's just kind of seeing like how things like get huge. Like, because uh, it, it's a whole different game. It's like this huge grind you got to do and you got to keep chipping away and you got to keep building up the core audience and you got to ask your audience to watch more videos. It's no different than being in LA 
and auditioning and getting rejected, rejected, rejected until you get a walk on part on a television show. And then you leverage that and maybe you get a spin. You know, it's all it's the same game, except now like the middleman has been removed and it's really up to you. Like, you know, one of your close personal friends, uh, Rue, is an actor, I think still. I don't know. Uh, I know he's working (laughs) with a mutual friend, Mark on Cultasaur, whenever that's going to come out. But, um, this is a guy to really leverage himself and get more work should be consistently making content, not just content, but you know, art on YouTube. And I don't think he is. I don't, uh, this isn't an indictment on him, but if you're an actor, why wouldn't you, if you're a filmmaker, why wouldn't you make experimental avant-garde, whatever films and put them on YouTube, like whether if they die there or not, but at least to, like so much of the game is learn on the job. Like YouTube is the best on the job training there is for anybody. So you have to leverage that. Like it's no, it's no different. You know, like why is, I understand that things used to be easier. Yeah. The trailer for my first movie got 2000 views, like organically that if I were to release the same thing today, like it would die. It would have 50 views from me and my mom 25 times, you know? Um, <laughs> And like, that's fair though. That's fair because it's 2019 and ungodly amount of 12 year olds are on it. So you have to just, it's the same tenets. Like you have to know your audience and you have to consistently creatively and you know, the, the quality has to be there as well. Um, just tell your story onto them and cross pollinate between Twitter and Instagram and TikTok now. And that's just the game, you know? Um, and I respect that. Dude, take it from me. Like, I have 100 uh, public videos and, like, 400 private videos. And my channel's ancient. Like, it's grandfathered in. Um, so it's hard to pop. But I trust the culture. Like, I have nobody to blame but myself. Like, if I don't have a million subs, it's because I haven't connected, you know, uh, properly. Like, but, it, you know, I, I do believe it will. Uh, it's like... It's like cutting the stone, you know, that old adage, like it's not the, it's not that you did anything different on the 4,756 hit to the boulder. No, it's all those hits to the boulder and you slice that fucker in half. So, you know, I feel like the, you know, the truisms are still true and you just, the consistency is key. It's the same thing like with this podcast, like if I had one every week, it'd be bigger. It's just, you know, but I do once, I do one once a month. So you have no one to blame but yourself. Um, it's easier when you're younger and you don't have other responsibilities, right? Like it's easier when you're 18 and all, all you all you have nothing but time. You have all the time, and so you can actually explore those little micro universes and those cultures and being on the forums and all that. And so, of course, it feels more lively um, back then than it does now. But those kids, like Aiden, my son, just begged me this, you know, today for a. Um, Oh, let me look at my texts, what it was, because he threw such a big stink about it. Um, he wanted to download Discord, which is like a chat program to put on live streams. And oh, that's what's going on. These kids are in it. They know. And, and it's hot. It's white hot. You know, um, I'm just I'm an older guy. Like I said, I'm 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 up on the I'm over the hill so I can look at things. And I've seen the trends go round and round, you know, Um but I still respect it. And uh, sadly, there's just, we're in the middle of like a, of a hardcore trend. And I'm just waiting for that trend to die. Um, and it's like wrestling, like, you know, uh, 
so-and-so is going to get injured, aka burned out, and you know, it'll be my time to shine because I'm still going to be here. It's like Kofi, right? Like <laughs> eventually he, he did not quit and the culture was like, hey, this is our guy. I, I believe in that. I still believe in that. It happens all the time. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and in some ways, like, like yeah, like, and, and I'm really glad we have this conversation because hearing about, like, uh, Aiden and Fiona's, like, relationship with YouTube kind of made me happy. And I, I know that sounds weird because, like, they're just, like, watching YouTube videos. Yeah. But I guess, like, in a weird way, some of my fondest memories were just kind of, like, watching YouTube videos. <laughs> so, like, like uh, this goes without saying, but, like, I think, I think uh, I, I kind of grew up as, like, a lonely kid. kid. So, like, <laughs> so, like, those communities were kind of like everything for me in some ways. And it's just kind of a, uh, I don't know. It's kind of cool hearing, hearing uh, that it's kind of just, it's kind of just become something totally different, you know? And that it's just, it's, it's, that's kind of, it's, you know, the, it's, uh, it's not that different. Like it's the, it's, you know, things are just cooler for the younger kids, but guess what? Like they're still as empty as we were, you know, I believe yeah. that. Like I tell Aiden, I'm like, dude, you have high speed internet. You have your own TV in your room. You have your own room. I didn't have my own room until I was 14. You have a yeah. fucking smartphone. You have AirPods. Like, people have told me, your son has AirPods. But, like, as an indictment on me, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, like, shit. I didn't even, you know, fuck. I didn't even <laughs> think about that. Um, Wait, uh, can, I, can I ask you, and I, I only ask you, and, like, this is not. Yeah, it's cool. Like, some scientific thing, but yeah. does Aiden and Fiona like movies or no? They do. We have movie night once a week. We saw Hocus okay. Pocus yesterday. Um, Claire's favorite, I mean, um, Fiona's favorite movie, like for real, for real, is Shaun of the Dead. It's her favorite movie. I think she likes movies more than Aiden does. Like, it's really looked at as kind of like almost archaic movies. This guy does not yeah. put in, I don't think he's ever put a DVD in, a DVD player, <laughs> you know? Um, he does not go on Netflix and put on a movie he puts on YouTube, right? When he experiences Infinity War, he's watching Thanos clips on YouTube. He's not putting on the Blu-ray, right? So they do. They do watch movies, but it's really because it's their parents' pastime. Yeah. That's huh. just the truth. You know, it's just the truth. But YouTube's really more of the, uh, the curated content, you know, because they... You know, uh, they buy into the whole authenticity of like this person's like, hey, how you doing? Sub to my thing. Like, it's just way more personal, like, you know, than yeah. Rocco's modern life, which never even looks at me, <laughs> you know? Man, that's, that's, that's something. But yeah, and I feel like uh, YouTube has kind of created its own visual language, you know, kind of using a film term for it. And I, and like, because uh, this, now I'm getting like, this is like the most inside baseball. Let me ask you, let me ask you, uh, hold on to that thought. Is YouTube okay. cinema? Say again? Is YouTube cinema? Is YouTube cinema? Uh, so yeah, let, just let so. that hang. Okay. You said yes, but just, I was going to say, let it, let it hang as a hypothetical, but you know, we, you were one of the first guys ever that was, that opened my eyes with like vine is cinema. Yeah. Because they're using the same <laughs> tenets and the same language as cinema, as movies, you know, like cut, cut, mm -hmm. cut, cut, cut. Um, like one of the most, here's like an easy vine. There's that one where um, the guy is in, in like um, outside of his apartment and he tells his wife like, hey, can you throw me the keys? And she throws a <laughs> printer at him. 
and he's and she's and he's like what I don't forget if the punchline but it's like why did you you know, where are the keys or whatever? Why'd you throw me a printer? And she's like, I thought you said printer, whatever. The point is uh, there's a three X structure in a six second yeah. vine. That's more popular than anything I've ever fucking done. Yeah, no man. But how is that not so- cinema? Sorry, go on. Yeah, no vines were so awesome. Like I know TikTok's kind of taken over and vine got shut down, but vine was so awesome because of how short it was and how quickly someone has to tell a story. Like it, it really opened my eyes to, to, to see like how much you can fit into a six sec, six second movie. Like the, one of my favorite ones was just like little kid, or he was a little kid. I think he had like a like a like something going on, but but he was like he was washing dishes and then the the water hits the spoon and then, and then it cuts him getting splashed like a bucket of water. And it right. just like it just broke me. And it's just like man, I'm like nowhere near as like clever as like as these kids are that are doing this and like. Like, you know, like 12 year olds are like understanding the editing yeah, or even younger are understanding editing just on their phone. Like in that, in that, in that way, it's like really cool. I think when something doesn't become cinema for me anymore to go in like this real rhetorical way is when it becomes too, when it becomes too much of like a, like a, like a brand, you know, like, uh, like thinking of like certain YouTubers, right. Where they're just always like, Hey, buy this, buy this, buy this, or buy that. You know, like I, I have hardly seen videos like that, but I know that's a thing. You know what I mean? Especially for like videos like aimed at younger kids. Totally. And uh, that's, that's to me when it becomes a little bit weirder, but I, I do think like bloggers and the way they tell their visual stories are very, it's very interesting. That's kind of where I was going to go, go to towards right now is that like, because we know they're not really looking at anything, you know, when they're going like, Hey guys, what's up? They're talking to the phone, they're talking to the camera. And there's like probably a light behind them. And it's like as artificial as a movie. But it's like visual language where they know talking to someone makes it feel more realistic. And it's kind of like a documentary or as artificial as anything else. But it's like it's still kind of like presents itself as like real life. And that's and that's like kind of the growth of cinema. You know, it's just like it's these like ever growing like new cinema techniques and languages and things kids like understand, you know? And I don't know. And in that way it's, it's it's a, it's interesting hearing, hearing you talk about like, or not you, but you know, you talk about your kids like saying they want the more personal side of, of, of videos, you know, I Mm -hmm. guess. (laughs) A hundred percent. Yeah. And I'm, I'm constantly always watching like what Aiden's looking at and, you know, think about this, like the Conan O'Brien plus Carson Daly that from the TRL days, plus, you know, um, Walter Cronkite plus Carson Daly, plus like all these guys put together, like that's PewDiePie. And this is going to be a guy and the voice that, my son's like this is shaping his life, his childhood, the way that I don't know Nick at Night or MTV Music Videos was for me, and I still think about like think about how like I don't know if you grew up with South Park, but I did, and like that shaped my sense of humor forever. Yeah, and it shaped my politics forever. Like PewDiePie and his style is totally shaping our youth right now, and in insurmountable way 
Like it's incalculable right now. Like the effects that this guy's going to have on this new class of, you know, kids. Um, it is huge. And so I had to really study this guy and like watch all his, not all, he has, ten, you know, thousands of videos, but I had to be like, let me see what this guy is to see if he's safe. And he is, he's harmless. He is. Um, but I had to know, cause I have to know what my kid's listening to. I didn't know who XXX Tentacion was until Aiden started listening to him, like before he died. And I was like, what is my son listening to? And I hear his music and I'm like, this is shit I would have liked as a kid. It's meant for, it's emo yeah. music for kids. And uh, so in a way, Aiden keeps me young in that way because I want to know like what is, what is like, wh what is his escapism, you know, from me, his dad, because, you know, I'm not fun all the time. And I want to know like, what is he running away to? Same thing with Fiona, like what does she run away to? And it's mostly like makeup videos and like, barbie shit but at the same time like i want to make sure that you know it's not poisonous somehow you know uh, even though my yeah. kids watch rated r movies like you know so we're all fucked up but um, yeah I, I i was gonna ask because i i just can't imagine you have married many like how, how old is they i know you said like 12 years old right no he's gonna be 14 next month so he's 14 and time flies <laughs> but uh yeah he's 14 um so like you realistically can't, like, at this time, even control what he watches. So even if he was watching, like, something Pornhub. really bad, it's not like Pornhub. he'd be like, don't watch that. You know what I mean? Well, I, I can't, you know, I really, hope what, I really hope that we can, we're at a place and we can be at a place where, as a dad, I can tell him about how much porn will fuck up his life and his sex life and all that stuff and how he looks at women. Like, I want to be able to have those conversations with him. But look, look. Like, you got to be real. I can't monitor everything he's watching. The, yeah. cat, the cat's out of the fucking bag. You know, you can't put the toothpaste back into, you know. So I got to live with that. But, um, I tr you know, I monitor his phone. Like, I, uh, he's on my family plan. So I give him four hours. That's a lot. But I give him four hours of phone time every day. And so when he acts like a shithead, I give him five minutes and so he has to request if he can use YouTube. And that's a lot of power. Like, that makes me feel like a big, big old man. You know, it's the equivalent of like, you know, unplugging the TV, which is something my mom would do. Not that she never, not that she ever did. But um, it's the equivalent of like that. So we still yield the power. But at the same time, like, you know, I don't know what he's YouTubing. You could YouTube like hardcore porn. I think they have penetration on YouTube, you know. Yeah, no, for sure. It just, uh, no, I guess, I guess that's, that's interesting. And he actually kind of brought me back to, I remember when I was a little kid, I was really addicted to the N64. And uh, one time my mom was just trying to get me to do something and I just wasn't listening. And she comes and she like just unplugs my N64. And I remember being so mad because I had it like, I don't think I saved. And I was just like, what the heck was that? And yeah. like, I don't know. Like, oh, and yeah. it's funny because like, I remember being so mad, but like in the end, like really what? What was that? You know what I mean? I like, will tell you, you that when your mom did that, she knew. She knew you'd be all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'll no, fucking just... live. But, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the same thing, you know. Um, but it makes sense. It's, it's a little crazy because sometimes my videos will pop up on their recommended. And, you know, oh, it makes God. sense because we have the same internet. So it's all the same information, you know, uh, like... I see, like, Claire and I are different politically, but whatever 
she's inoculating herself with and vice versa on Twitter comes to my feed, right? And it's the same thing with YouTube with the kids. So they'll, I ha- I've had to take some videos down. There's one where I uh, took a razor blade and I cut my head and I just was bleeding oh, everywhere. Yeah. Uh, there, that video was out there and I took it down because I was like, I don't want the kids, I can't, I'm not ready to explain this to them, you know? Um, so, so, so can I ask, can I ask you this question and of course you can edit it out yeah, but yeah yeah i remember you you had this video and this was somewhat recent where you like where the video title was like someone asked me to cheat on my wife or you know something like yeah, that yeah yeah and then and then like i found it again recently and you had changed the title was that the reason why um i no no uh no uh, i rechanged that title because um i the only reason why i named it that was because for clickbait and i ethically am like not about that life i have a whole notebook full of clickbait titles that i know would get views that i know will get views i just constitutionally can't do it i can't you know i can't i can't no and here's the thing that that was like one of the most viewed videos ever for me was they asked me to cheat on my wife or whatever and it's get the fuck out of here like i i don't like that and I don't want to yeah, be remembered no. for that. So it had nothing to do with my kids. Okay. I'll just, Good I question, though. Because I, I, that was actually your most famous video. Like, yeah. I was looking at your, your, yeah. your numbers. So I was just like, hmm. Oh, I, have the, I have the weakest and I, and numbers, It never dude. really mattered to me. I just, like, it, it randomly got brought back into my attention. Something, my something right I want to say that I, I want to put on wax is, like, you know, my numbers are, t- are so wax. Somebody hurt my feelings on Facebook, and they were like, like knives, how dare you even have this audacity? Like, look at your fucking numbers. You're, nobody's watching your videos. And I was like, fuck, dude, that I'm not gonna lie. Like, yeah, I know shit. And I was thinking about deleting that comment and I didn't because it, it stung, but I had nothing to say to that because it was so true. But there is something to be said. There is something to be said about the impact that I do make for being in the game for so long, like I'm a lot of people's unsung hero, hopefully not forever, but you know, it's, we, we, you know, so I, uh, I used to be the personal videographer for Dakota Meyer and he was recently on Joe Rogan and I was off the internet during that time, but I got a lot of text messages from people being like, Whoa, dude, like that's so cool. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool. Um, but I used to ha- have access to all of Dakota's credentials, right? Like, so his Instagram, his Facebook, his YouTube. And I know what it feels like to post something via his machine on Instagram and get 10,000 likes. And the notifications and how your phone blows up when you post something that, that's a smash. I know what that's like. And I can say that it's a very empty fucking feeling. But a pat in the back in real life is far more emotionally and cerebrally and like neurologically potent than 10,000 likes in 30 minutes on Instagram. And so there's something to be said about when you post a video and you get 250 views and you're like, well, that was whack. That's 250 people that saw it. If you were in a room giving a PowerPoint presentation to 250 people and having 500 eyeballs look at you, it would make you feel away. Like you would have diarrhea before you went up on stage. Right? So there's something to be said about like, I think if I had to write a list of like people that carried the Knives Monroe flag, people that would buy the Knives Monroe patch, guys like you and even like our dear mutual friend, Joe Ayala and a few other people I don't want to name, um, really 
care about me and have always been there. And the fact that they watch my shit, like, is super flattering. And, like, believe it or not, like, my bandwidth could not really um, process a million people watching my shit. The fact that there's 10 to 20 people that, like, give a shit about what I have to say, and you're one of them, like, it's truly profound. It it really is. And I know it's kind of like a, well, my dick's only five inches. It's not the size of the dick. It's, you know, where you shoot. I know it's very like that, but it's also true. It's, it's both. Yeah. It's like, I'm except I'm walking away with the bronze medal. It's third place. You're the third guy on the moon. No one's going to remember you, but at the same time, motherfucker, you know, I got a medal. So it, it is what it is. Um, yeah. Or I, I walked on the moon. I prefer that metaphor, but, yeah, um, there you go. so I ain't going to stop, man. You know, I like it and you never know what's going to be the thing that pops, but I don't, I want it to be for the right reasons. Like I don't want it to be because I went to the suicide forest and I touched a dead body and I filmed it. I want it to be for the right reasons. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and I, and I, I've been, you know, been watching anything forever, like 2012. Like I, I remember watching her up and being like, Oh, yeah, that was good. So just seeing how you've, uh, and you've been through like so many stages as a YouTuber and, uh, and I've enjoyed every one of them. So you must be doing something right. At least, at Thanks. least for me. Thanks so, man. <laughs> Thanks man. Uh, there's a trend right now that I despise and I think we're moving past it. So mark my words, like a trend right now is, um, like it's very salesman-y. Like I'm pushing this new Canon camera. It's the T9i. I'm pushing it. And here's my review. And here's the T99 versus the T8i. What do you think? Right. And it's like, that's the fucking trend we're on right now. Like that's the apex of YouTube filmmaking. I despise it. I think we're going we're go, we're going to this new trend which is like about the opposite the antithesis of consumerism and it's more about like journaling and you know more like a holistic approach to storytelling until it becomes this video sponsored by Squarespace and you know it's just like the same old shit but um I think I'm really going to have all my ducks in a row like dude I have like all the equipment I ever wanted I I use lights which I never used to do um, so much of it is overkill. Like I, be, I still believe all you need is a phone. Um, but I like where I'm at. Like, I like that I'm able to, this conversation that we're having is a podcast. I like that, you know, um, my podcast has had more success than any film I've ever made. Like, I think that's for a reason. I think I, I need to pay attention to that, you know? So, um, there's something to be said about like being the guy that, you know, it took Daniel Bryan was like, what, 33 when he went on top of the world like he went through every stage of criticism before he was the guy you know so i truly 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 believe in that um nobody yeah. nobody and ever he, comes out like nobody ever makes it at 18 and they're a they're a final package you know i i and if we had to talk about sports like there's guys that who's one like grant hill or somebody where where you're like whoa this guy's been like the low-key goat for a long time he's he's still in it like i think that's going to be my my thing like you know say what you want about louis ck but he wasn't like 39 when he made it right so you just can't give up you can't give up and what kind of filmmaker would i really be if i tapped out in 2014 exactly and 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 that's why you've kind of like uh, like and it's 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 a very it's very interesting that this is where the conversation has gone, but this is, I kind of enjoy it. But, um, it's like, if you stopped making YouTube videos at 2014, I don't, I don't think 
or if you even stopped making movies at 2014, right? Which is, you know, I legitimately thought you were. And seeing, like, how much you've grown as a filmmaker and a, and a videographer and everything, it's just like, whoa, boy, was I wrong. You know, it's just kind of one of those things where it's just like, man, he he always believed in himself. And then, like, and even, like, when all the chips were down, you were like, nah, I, still, I still got, like, this card here. I, I can still keep going. And it's like, whoa. And, like, and like you know, now you've, you've done so many, like, cool things. And, like I said, anytime you post a video, it's like it pops up on my feed. And I'm like, oh, cool. Now it has a new video. I'm going to watch it. So it's just... uh that's very cool that, that thanks like, man that, that means a lot and to any creative that's listening like you really have to understand that like jr when i met him i was homeless i did not have an apartment and i mean i didn't have a place to fucking live and this one time um eventually you know i got an apartment blah 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 and my car got towed and jr lent me 250 bucks and i have to believe that he was like i'm never gonna get this money back <laughs> you know, and, and he did not, it didn't take too long either, but, um, I've come a long fucking way. And like, I went from the top of the world, had, having made a movie to being homeless, to having my car towed, to living under Dave's bed and subletting my apartment oh, yeah. For, to room. I forgot about that era. Yeah, fucking, that oh, I think about that era all the time because the blanket that I had, I still have that blanket and that's my fucking blanket. And Claire's like, throw this shit out. And I'm like, never because I fucking, this thing is soaked in tears. Um, and you know, going from that to having a kid to working at Burger King to putting eight grand into a movie and publicly failing, like in front of everybody that I knew. And then a month later having my first born daughter and just all this craziness coming to Austin was a pipe dream, you know? And, and I can say that I get paid more money than, you know, I ever thought I would realistically to to take pictures, to make podcasts, to make videos. Like it's it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool, and uh, you don't get that without you know a, a lot of failure, and you don't get that without. It's a last man standing match. You gotta you gotta get up by nine. Period. Period. <laughs> you know, and I yeah. I keep getting up. Like that's that's all. You know, that's fucking all. I have been past burnout. I have been so tired, you know, all that stuff. But uh, I am very proud. I'm very proud. I'm, I do not accept compliments. Like, I, I can barely take a pat in the back. But I will say, just to the fucking creatives out there, this is who the, the podcast is for. Like, I'm very proud that at 25, I had two kids. And I knew, I fucking knew that I was not going to be that guy that, no longer had time to make art. I was going to be that guy that made 10 times more art because of my kids. And I have, like I've made a thousand hours of content like since 2015. And, um, you know, Jesus, like in 2012, I made one movie. I thought that was a lot. It was 30 shooting days. It took 10 days to edit. It's not a big fucking deal. I do that every day. And the past 45 days I've, filmed and edited and uploaded uh, a terabyte and a half not a lot but it is a lot of footage commercially and uh corporately it's brutal you know it's same thing with joe ayala who i saw was at vid summit or vidcon one of those and um he met mr beast you know and uh i'm so proud of that guy dude like that was one of the guys who if if i had to buy like 100 percent joe ayala stock 
I would have because I knew that the return, he's not going to stop. He's like me. This is all we know, you know, and guys like that, like, can't give up. And I'm very proud that, you know, there, there's, I just wasn't going to give up my dream, whether if I had kids or not. It's no, having kids is no reason to give up your dream, you know? Um, so, yeah. yeah, sorry, just, you know, not to flex and choke on my own junk, but <laughs> the truth is I am, I am really proud of that. Um, but just to yeah. kind of talk about the YouTube stuff, sorry, we, no, let's wrap up. Let's no, start to wrap up here. Yeah. Let's, uh, yeah, let's wrap, let's wrap up. But I guess in a, in a some way, like it, it, this all was kind of like chronicling the decade because this all happened within a decade span, you know, we, we met each other in 2012, you know, now, yeah, yeah. now towards the telling of the decade and it's just, it's been a good decade, you know, so it's been a good so, decade, been, man. We saw, um, Wolf of Wall Street together, Spring Breakers together. We never saw the Master together. Um, of course, you know we saw Life of Pi together. We saw no, Life no. of yeah, Pi. We we saw, that was a good one. We saw great. What? Which one? Life of Pi. Yeah, that was a great one. Yeah, we saw Great Gatsby together. Which Pain was and Gain. Did we see Pain and Gain together? Who we might have. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we we saw a few movies together. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, and it, and it's funny because like it, I consider you one of my my better friends, but it's like we we only like lived in the same city for like such a small amount of time. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah. That's it's, really crazy. It's, it's been it's been fun, but uh, yeah, no, let's uh, let's uh, let's let's wrap it up. But but uh, to just kind of put a bow on the decade, uh, I mean, this is like such a quick thing. But like, outside of a Shawn Michaels match, what was like your favorite wrestling thing of the decade? Without a doubt, the CM Punk pipe bomb. I know it's corny, but uh, yeah, I, I was Dave and I would we were writing partners. We were actually formulating stuff for her dot, and. Um, um, we would, every Monday, his mom would make us dinner and I never had homemade dinner. My first homemade dinner was from his mom and I was like 23 years old. And, um, we'd be in his room. He had a futon and Monday night raw would always be there on mute. And a couple of weeks before that CM Punk was like, I'm my contract is up after money in the bank and I'm out. And so that always stood out to me because I was like, Oh no, this is my favorite wrestler. I was that snob that in 05, this guy was my favorite when he was in Ring of Honor. Like, and then he signed his WWE contract on a Ring of Honor belt. Like, I was so bought in. And um, I was always that guy that just give Punk the microphone and watch what happens. You don't even know what they have here. And so I remember it was a tables match with R-Truth and John Cena. I remember it. And it was on mute. And it was one of those main events that, like, I ain't really going to watch this. But when Punk came out and started cutting that promo, Dave and I stopped talking, and I was like, dude, wait, wait. And we watched it, and the way it cut off without, like, the, the end-of-show signature, like, it just cut off, cut to black. Um, I mean, wrestling hasn't recovered. It was never the same after that. And uh, I'll never forget that feeling, and I remember thinking, like, I wasn't there for the Austin 316 just said, I just whooped your ass. I wasn't there for that live. I wasn't there for um, WrestleMania 13, Austin Bleeding Live. I wasn't there for, for a lot of things, but um, I was there for that, and that was, like, giant. That was, like, my um, football team winning the Super Bowl, you know, for me. Just that promo alone and the implications, like, what it meant. And uh, WWE later co-opted that promo and made everything that happened in it real. Paul Heyman wasn't a part of the conversation. Brock Lesnar wasn't a part of the conversation. Like, not until that promo, you know, um, and all that. So 
it's the reason why people want him to come back, even though I know it'll never happen. I don't want it to happen. I'm happy with what he gave us. Like it was more than what we deserved, but gosh, in a, in a pretty decent decade, there's been good stuff. That's number one for me. What about you? Well, for me, and, and, and unfortunately I wasn't there watching it. Cause that's kind of when I was in my no longer watching wrestling period, but that's kind of what kind of almost got me back in. But for me, it was the steel cage match of, uh, Danny Bryan mm-hmm. and Bray Wyatt. Mm-hmm. And, uh, when Danny that. Bryan gets on top of that cage and starts doing the S chant oh. and the camera pushes back or not pushes back, but you know, pulls back mm-hmm. and you see everyone in that arena doing mm-hmm. it. And yeah. it was just like, holy crap. Yeah. He's finally made it. And like, no matter what WWE is going to try to do, yeah. he's, he's too big. He's like, he's officially too big to be yeah. denied. And you know, fortunately <laughs> he was, and he got his moment. But yeah, no, that was, that was something special because Brian, Brian Danielson was my favorite wrestler. You know, the American Dragon was my favorite wrestler. And then yep. it was just cool seeing him have that moment because I always like, because much like Chris Benoit, I just never thought he was going to, I never thought he was going to make it because he was too small. He was good on the mic, but he was never great. You know, he became great, but he was never great. Mm-hmm. And then just to see that moment, it was like everyone sees what I see with Daniel Bryan. So that was, that's for me, that was, that was my moment. But that's but yeah, the, that's the, guys, huh? that's <laughs> the best thing about wrestling is like eventually everybody, it, you can become undeniable. And it's like the equivalent of like you take a Mission Impossible movie. It's never going to not be about Tom Cruise. But in wrestling, yeah. like any character can become the main character on the show. And that's really fun. Uh, maybe not in WWE anymore, but it can happen in wrestling. Um, so that's, that's really exciting. I agree. I can't think of anything else that, that comes close. Um, and there's been some good stories that have been told in wrestling, but nothing comes close. Mm-hmm. Like those two are pretty big. Because, you know, for WWE, my, I kinda, my heart kind of died when um yeah when punk left my heart kind of died like i remember thinking who's there cesaro am i sticking around for this guy i love him <laughs> but am i sticking around for cesaro like no um so you know goddamn like right now i don't have a guy it's like my football yeah. team went to the super bowl and i'm done and i'm done with football forever is how i feel but yeah man anything you want to um, talk about you know um as we're getting out of here, like any, anything going on this year, anything, any, you know, what kind of bow do you want to put on this motherfucker? I think, I think that was it. I just, I, you know, we're, we're two wrestling guys to our bones. Like even, maybe even before films, I felt like we're wrestling guys. So I just wanted to end it with the, with the wrestling question. So there you go. I appreciate that. JR. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I could have you on anytime. We can talk shit anytime. Um, I really appreciate it. I love you. And, uh, you're one of my best friends, man. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Love you too. Anytime. See ya.